Sports talk with a little bit of an edge. Can you feel the tension in the air right now? I know I can. I can feel it all the way down in my plums. The Adam Crowley Show on ESPN Pittsburgh. Andrew McCutcheon is back in time. Tom Janad wrote a piece for the undefeated and ESPN magazine about Mike Tomlin and race. So we start the show talking about spiders, bees, and Hawaii. You found the Crowley Show where your mom listens, and you should too. 412-922-2874 is the number to call, or you can join the cast of dozens and follow me on Twitter at underscore Adam Crowley. Brian LaMartina is sitting across from me. We've got shirtless Tom in the studio next door. I had to brutally murder in the last two days a spider and a bee, and I'm wondering if everybody else kills insects anytime they see them in their house. For me, they've got to be threatening. If a spider's just crawling along and it's in a corner and I'm going to be hanging out in another room for a little while, I'll let it go. If there's a bee in my house... I'll try to capture it, but that'll only last for about 30 seconds. If I can't get that mf in a cup, I'm going to beat the living snot out of it, or I suppose the honey out of it. I've also killed some spiders in awful ways. I vacuumed one the other day, and then it didn't die, and I wanted to make sure that it did die, so I dumped the vacuum out, and my wife beat it to death with a shoe. Back in college, I used to have spiders living with me. I was in the basement in Morgantown, so dear sweet God. And I'd walk into the room and there'd be a spider sitting there smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. So I am well-versed in battling with these jackals. And I think I might be allergic to bees. I don't know if I am, but I think that I might be. I got stung once and my knuckle exploded. And I think the next one might kill me. So I'm going to kill them. So that's the topic A of today's show, 412-922-2874. Weigh in on that. You brutally murder insects? Tom, do you brutally murder insects? It depends on the insect. Like if it's a spider, you said you'd leave a spider in the other room if you were chilling in like your living room and it was in the dining room. Yeah. No, I'm killing the spider no matter what room it's in if I know it's there. But if it's like an ant, I'll let the ant live. If it's a stink bug, I'll try to take it outside, let it live. I always preserve the stink bug. You have to preserve the stink bug. I like the stink bug. I try to save all of them. Unless they're threatening to me. What I will kill every time, whether they're threatening or not, is that creepy crawler son of a bitch. The house oh, centipedes. Weird centipede oh. thing. House centipedes, yep. What a creepy thing. Ugh. That thing's alien. Like, that's got to have poison in it. It just looks like it's got poison in it. If you've got more than eight legs, I'm killing you on the spot. And that MFR's got a hundred. Either you guys ever taken a lighter to a spider? I used to magnify glass them outside back when I lived. Oh, you did? Yeah, in a different spot. See, I'll catch them when they're on. Like if I see them coming down, usually in my apartment, like I'll see them. Like I'll start to see them like kind of lower. Like especially when it starts getting warm now. So all I do is look. I don't want you to lower. So you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it a little hot under you. And mm -hmm. if you keep lowering, that's on you. It's ball it's game. It's not on me. That's your decision at this point. There is fire under you. Yeah. And if you keep coming, it will burn your ass. I don't mind that so much because they're not going to suffer. They're just 
done if they continue to well distend. Actually, they do suffer a little bit. Oh, um, you're, you don't, they don't, they, they don't go right I've up. had some dumbass spots, right? And what it does is it like wrinkles up the back. Like it wrinkles up like kind of the, I don't know, what's that, the uh, the thorax or whatever the hell they call it. That little back part. Can we pause for a second? Sure. You knew it was called the thorax, but you wanted to make sure that we didn't think that you knew it right off the top of your no, head. No, because I, I don't know if the thorax is the middle part or the end part. And I'm talking about the back part. You're talking so, about the booty. Yeah, the booty part. Yeah, the booty. Let's just, for the sake of scientific purposes, mm-hmm. call it the booty part. I've seen the booty part come down and get, like, charred and wrinkled and kind of start to, like, squeeze up like it's all burnt, but the spider kept going. And that wigged me out. Because what happens at that point is when the spider retracts, if I've hurt the spider, then I'm worried that that spider's going back. And I know this is irrational, but this goes through my head. I'm worried that the spider goes back up into the ceiling and is like, hey, spider buddies, we got a mortal enemy down there, and we need to wait till he falls asleep and attack. Yeah, I will 100% agree with that, Brian. There is no point after I kill a spider that I'm not afraid of all his friends coming to suck all the innards out of me. Yeah, they talk. They do. And there's pheromones, I'm pretty sure. So if you kill one of them puppies... They be coming back after you. Yep. I know that's happening. Bees for sure. Bees, if you kill a bee, they be smelling that bee, and they're trying to come in there and avenge that guy. And what happened to me was, right now I'm working out in my garage, so I'll open up the garage, and I'll be you know lifting or whatever, and a bee flies in. And I, okay, whatever. It's not going to bother me. Well, then it lands on the weights as I'm pushing them up and down. And I guess, okay, well, I'm going to have to put them up, and now I'm going to have to kill this guy. So I grabbed a foam roller and I smacked it against the wall. It's brutal, but it's the way it's got to be. And Ed agrees. He tweets at underscore Adam Crowley. Insects equal instant death to me. The reason why I bring this up isn't only because I like to kill creatures and it is creature season where they're all just going to start funneling into your house. It's because we're about to have a very serious racial conversation with Tom Janot <laughs> from the undefeated. And I'll tell you what, it's a Friday, and I don't think you want to have the racial conversation anyhow, but especially not on a Friday, but you need to hear it. So we'll dress it all up around the frills, we'll have some fun today, we'll mess around, but we're talking race, and we're going to talk race as it affects Andrew McCutcheon too. I also have this one up on Twitter. What are your most widely criticized sports opinions? i.e., mine is Bobby Orr's infamous moment. The goal and that photo, it ain't that cool. Oh, look, he's parallel to the ice. He scored before he jumped, and we can all do that. It's not that hard. You jump and fall at the same time. Bobby Orr is a great player. Won a lot. Kind of changed the way hockey's played. But you know what? That moment, that goal... That jump, lame. Lame. So weigh in on Twitter. Weigh in via the phones. Vince Commendal's going to join me at 6 because Leaky Pekka was in full effect last night. Yikes. He got pulled in 10 minutes and 7 seconds. It's the fastest a goalie's ever been pulled in a Game 7. Vince will join us to talk about Winnipeg advancing. I'm rooting for whoever comes out of the West. Vegas and Winnipeg are both great stories. Capitals, no. Tampa, you're all right with. Three out of four. 
I think you'd live with him. But Vince is coming back from Hawaii where he just had his honeymoon. And I think Hawaii is the dumbest place you could live. It's beautiful. I know Tim Benz's sister lives there. No offense to you, Benzie. But you're living on a giant mine. And by mine, I mean landmine. And by landmine, I mean volcano. And by volcano, I mean if magma is shooting out onto the concrete and becoming lava, I can see you getting ready to correct me there, Tom. You don't really have anyone to blame but yourself. If I live on Mount Everest and my house falls away in an avalanche, I probably would have had insurance. And if I died, well, it's probably to be expected. We'll get into the dumbest places to live later on in the show as well. McCutcheon's coming back tonight. And I'm getting told by everyone how I'm supposed to feel. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's telling me, don't go and do this. Don't go and do that. Kevin Gorman, who writes for the Trib, said, if you're going to go to cheer McCutcheon, cheer the Pirates too, because they're playing well. I'm not going to tell you not to do that, but how dorky does that sound? That sounds so lame. Well, while you're there, why not be happy for the Pirates? I hate the ownership group. I like these players to win. I don't like the owner to win. I also love McCutcheon and love what he brought to this city. So I feel like my head's going to explode. That's where I am on this whole thing. I don't have a definitive opinion other than there's a lot going through my mind and through my heart, frankly, when I see Andrew McCutcheon in another team's colors. That guy was baseball to me. As a kid, I used to go all the time. All the time. I went 60 games a year for three summers in a row because we were lucky enough to inherit some season tickets. I knew the ushers' names. I knew the elevator guys' names because I wasn't walking up to Section 307. That wasn't happening. I sat next to Jan and Walter up there in 307. Great people. Love them to death. Baseball was my childhood in the summertime for a long time. And then Andrew McCutcheon came around. Everything sucked before McCutcheon, yet we still had fun. But when he came, man, we were having fun, and they were winning, and it was awesome. And now he's gone. And he's gone because the ownership group was cheap. This all ties in, or ties all my feelings together. Tonight does. Uh, At about 7.06, 7.08, whatever time it might be, Andrew Cutchin walks up to bat. It's going to make me cave in on myself like a dying star. It's going to remind me of my childhood. It's going to remind me of Andrew McCutcheon being one of the best pirates, if not the best pirate that I've ever really laid eyes on. I was two years old when Barry Bonds left. And it's also going to remind me at that same time, because he's wearing different colors, that the ownership group got rid of him. So forgive me if I don't cheer the baseball team. I might boo them. And it's not because of the players, but it's because of the ownership group. I know I will cheer McCutcheon. But it's real deep, man. It's real deep. As I mentioned, Tom Janad, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. We'll find that out when we talk to him coming up in a little bit. Tom was supposed to figure it out. He didn't. I kid. Shirtless Tom always gets his job done. He's from the Undefeated. He wrote a piece about Mike Tomlin trying to find out more about the guy. And here is... A nice little excerpt that I think will give you a good idea of what this piece is about. 
Quote, talk to white players who play for a black coach, and they'll tell you that the color of their coach's skin does not matter. Of course it doesn't matter. Why should it matter? It doesn't matter one bit. Talk to African-American players who play for a black coach, and they will tell you that the color of their coach's skin matters deeply, powerfully, necessarily, and unavoidably. Of course it matters. It has to matter. It better matter. You're damn right it matters, because it matters just for starters to them. And this is the insoluble paradox at the heart of the racial conversation in the United States circa 2018. That white America speaks of race as consideration to be transcended, and black America speaks of race as a force to be acknowledged. That white America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day end the conversation, and black America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day get the real conversation started. Wow, that's a good writer. And wow, I don't know if I've seen anybody else sum it up better what we're going through right now than he did in a sports article about Mike Tomlin. Well, we're not talking about the great political writers of the time. We're talking about one of the great sports writers of the time who somehow found a way to tie sports into the biggest issue that we're dealing with. And it's something that I've said a lot, just not clearly as well, that we've all grown up in different Americas. When I had the Colin Kaepernick conversation and people said, these people are lucky to have grown up in this country, most of the time they were yelling at me and they were white. And the country that they grew up in was a hell of a lot different than the country that black Americans have grown up in. So we'll have that conversation. That's coming up in six minutes here on the Crowley Show. Seriously, though, bugs, insects, Hawaii, We'll keep it light after the race talk, I promise. But we need to have the talk. Tom Janot joins us next. It's the Crowley Show. It's official. Weekends at Buffalo Wild Wings just got better. For a limited time, get $4 select shareables all day Saturday and Sunday. Choose from mozzarella sticks, chili queso dip, roasted garlic mushrooms, street tacos, or fried pickles. Watch all the games with people that are here for the right reason. With dozens of beers on tap and 21 different flavors of sauces and seasonings. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. See participating location for details. Restrictions apply. You know, the funny thing is, bees are real a-holes, man. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, totally. A-holes. They really are. Like, they're the jerk of the insect world. Like, I know everybody's like, eh, Save the bees. Yeah, save the bees. They help that. How about you buzz off? How about yeah. that? Oh. They use that as an excuse just to be an a-hole. It's like there's some kind of prima donna. It's like, oh, we're saving the world so we can be jerks. You know yeah. the thing about bees, too? The way that they fight? They're kamikazes. Yes. I've got a lot of people tweeting in about the moment in sports that they don't think is as great as other people do in the moment in sports that they have a different opinion on than most people do. We'll get to that coming up in a little bit. Got a lot of people tweeting in about insects right now, baby spiders, all that. We'll get to that coming up in a little while as well. But we're joined now by Tom Janot, who wrote about Mike Tomlin and did a fabulous job in doing so. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, thanks for having me on. Tom, why Tomlin and why now? Well, we were... Um... We were really writing the story for, um, you know, we, we always cover the teams that uh, have a chance of being in the Super Bowl. And so that's why I went down to do the story. It was sort of like a pre-Super Bowl, um, first pre-Super Bowl issue. And then I uh, went down. And as you know, uh, they not only didn't make the Super Bowl, they, they um, lost in their first playoff game. 
And I had written a draft of a story before that, and, you know, when the when they lost to the Jags, we had to make a decision of whether there was enough there to, you know, even without the Super Bowl to write about, about Coach T. And we did. So I went down and I, you know, I kept on, you know, trying uh, to hunt for him and to try to get him to talk to me, and he wouldn't. And, you know, then that sort of became the story. It was the story, and you did a fabulous job in making that part of it, obviously. Having been with Mike Tomlin off the field to an extent, uh, I feel like everything he says has a purpose, and he might be the most measured man that I've ever met. Uh, It seemed like you got a sense of that, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, one of the most interesting things about Coach T was that he talked to everybody. I mean, I watched him. I I went to... To several games, and I would all I would do was just sit here and watch him, like who he talked to on the sideline, who he talked to in the locker room. I mean, you know, he's a chatty guy, but not to me. So, um, and even you know, and just that that sort of um, that sort of fault line in him was was really kind of the most interesting thing to me. Why don't you think he talked to you? I was told from the very beginning that he wasn't going to talk to me. And as I found out, he's the kind of guy that if he tells you one thing in the beginning, he'll tell you the same thing at the end. There was no change in his mind. Uh, Tom Janot joining us, uh, senior writer, ESPN, wrote a piece on Mike Tomlin. I've tweeted it out a bunch. He's tweeted it out as well. It is fabulous. Uh, Mike is thought of as a player's coach in the mainstream. How did you find the players in the room to respond to that? Um, the thing that I found was that the, um, you know, the, uh, the front office, you know, uh, Kevin Colbert and Art Rooney did not think of him as a play, as a player's coach because they look at that as something of a slight, um, that, that means that he's friends with the players or he means that he doesn't have control of the players, but that the players looked at it in a completely different way was that, you know, he is a player's coach because he's honest with the players. And that was the thing that, that just came, through in interview after interview. I mean, I interviewed a lot of guys, um, some of them, you know, for, you know, long stretches of time on the phone, some of them on the fly for five minutes in the locker room. But I, I was I was really um, quite impressed uh, by the consistency of their responses to him. Mike has been very private about his personal life. In fact, the only radio interview I remember him doing was with Stan Saverin, who hosts a show on ESPN Pittsburgh. Right, and right. I remember him doing the interview and, and talking about the organization that he's now part of, uh, where they're trying to help young men who don't connect with their fathers. But that's really it. That's that's the only one that I can recall, and I think that, that does speak to the kind of guy he is. Yeah, but I think that, that you know, I think that the the thing that I tried to do in the story was talk about like where those things come from. I mean, it, it's, I mean, they are the manifestation of the private life or the life that he tries to keep private. I mean, you know, I have a story in there where the, you know, the, the um, organization, the, 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 the mission, uh, if you will, uh, is called man up. And it was you know started by this guy, Ed Glover, who, you know, he says was, you know, um, you know, prayed and, and God told him to ask Mike Tomlin to, you know, to participate. And he went up to Tomlin after speaking engagement and said, will you do this with me? And he was shocked because Tomlin said, I mean, immediately, yes. And, you know, Ed was shocked in, you know, in, in return because he was, 
you know, basically said, this is going to be a lot of work. Why are you doing this? And he's, you know, Tomlin said, I, uh, I just buried, I just buried a father I never knew. I want to get into the racial part of this because I, I find it fascinating. We talk about race on the show sometimes, mm-hmm, uh, sure. we, not all the time for some reasons that I think we all understand. Uh, people get all sure. fired up. Sure. Uh, I'm also probably not the most equipped to, to talk about racial racial conversations, but uh, sure. there was an excerpt, and I'm just going to read the beginning portion of it here. Uh, Tom Janot joining us, a senior writer from ESPN. Uh, quote, to talk to white players who play for a black coach, and they'll tell you that the color of their coach's skin does not matter. Of course it doesn't matter. Why should it matter? It doesn't matter one bit. Talk to African-American players who play for a black coach, and they will tell you that the color of their coach's skin matters deeply, powerfully, necessarily, and unavoidably. Of course it matters. It has to matter. It better matter. You're damn right it matters, because it matters just for starters to them. Just having known Mike Tomlin... He is in the middle of what is, I think, the biggest societal conversation that we're all having. However, whether or not it's a different conversation that some people are having than others. But I don't necessarily know if he views himself in that regard. What do you think? Nor nor do I. But I I will say that, you know, I went down to the Pro Bowl to try to um, talk to him. And it it was an effort that did not succeed. But I kept on talking to the people that he talked to every time that I saw him talk to somebody, I would go up to that guy and say, what did he say? And one of the guys that I talked to said, I mean, right away, oh, we just, we, just talked about, we just talked about him being a black coach and how much we need him as a black coach. So that was a conversation that he, he was having with, you know, this player. And, you know, when I talked to Tony Dungy, I mean, it's, you know, it's, he is, you know, he is a black coach. He is also a, a head coach in the NFL, and there's there's almost there's almost two constituencies for that. And the thing that I tried to do in the story was to, I mean, I, he didn't talk to me, so it, you know, I don't know whether it's something he thinks about, but I certainly studied him long enough and hard enough to figure out that, um, you know, it has to affect him in some way. And that's why the, the story begins as it does. It's, it begins with two long paragraphs that are just a description of his face. Tom, was there a different perception between white and black players as to whether or not Mike Tomlin was a player's coach? And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, the, but I would, say, I would say, I mean, in general... In general, no. Um, I mean, the, the the white player that I talked to more than more than any anybody else was was Alvaro Nueva, and you know his, you know he had been through something that he was trying to explain to me, which was the which was the the anthem protest and 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 his response to it. But one of the things that that Villanueva kept on, you know, kind of talking about was that how. How Coach T was a um, a uniter and and not a divider. That he you know was not political um, at all. And so I, I I think that you know I I kind of that was one of the things that inspired me to go in the direction that I went in. Tom Janod Jano, pardon me, joining us here on the Crowley Show. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about you wanting to ask Mike Tomlin 
uh, or I guess not supposed to ask him, but you wanted him to make a moral argument for professional football. Right. Uh, was it because you were around Mike Tomlin already and everything that happened with Ryan Shazier happened, or was it because you were so interested by Mike Tomlin you thought that his perspective on that issue would be interesting? Well, I just, I mean, to me, I mean, you know, certain people you see in the world who sort of have an aura of moral gravity. Sometimes, sometimes those men sort of live up to that, and sometimes they don't. Um, every um, time that I, I saw Coach Tomlin, he just seemed to have that have that aura. Um, you know, because his words are, you know, were so considered and they seemed to mean something. He seemed to want his words to mean something, even when he didn't, you know, use that many words. And um, I was following the team um, when Ryan Shazier went down and I was following the team, um, you know, when a um, a riot broke out that was called the Cincinnati Bengals-Pittsburgh game that, that Monday night. So, you know, I wanted to to get his his take on on all that because I, I know that the Ryan Chazier industry uh, injury I'm sorry um, affected him deeply. One of the most powerful quotes in the piece is when you said to Kevin Colbert that Mike Tomlin is a mystery and he said that's the one thing that he's not. Yeah, yeah. If only it were that simple, right? Right. Oh, exactly, exactly. But but it, it did it did. Um, cement my hunch that the way that the world looks at him or the way that he's looked at from the outside is very different from the way he's looked at from the inside. He, I mean, Colbert called him an open book. And I mean, I, I still, you know, I, I, um, I still haven't started reading that book. You know, that the open one, I, the, the closed book, I, I did try to read, but the open book, I, I, I didn't come across yet in the library. I think that Mike Tomlin is very concerned with perception. He, one time we were out and it was a, a Steelers gathering, probably shouldn't say this, but it was like five years ago. So, hey, yeah, why, why yeah. not? Yeah, statute of limitations. Yeah. And uh, he had a drink with us. Uh, I had probably had multiple beverages at that point. And sure. he started to walk back into the room. We were in a private room. He started to walk back into the bigger room of the restaurant and he turned around, walked back, and set the drink down before he went back out. And that, right. to me, just spoke to exactly who and also part of what he's trying to hide. Uh, I think that was very Mike Tomlin at that moment right there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, Ryan Clark said something, which was that, you know, it's, it's hard, um, and it takes a lot of work um, to, you know, kind of not, not, be, not be yourself and not be who you are all the time. And you know, and I think that you know, to me, to me, that that mask of a face, um, which we can all describe in a lot of ways. Anybody who's gone to a to a, a Mike Tomlin press conference, you know, you can't miss the kind of the drama of of that man's face. To me, that to me, his face shows some of that. Uh, Tom Janot joining us here on the Crowley Show. Uh, last thing here for you, Tom. Um, what do you think Mike Tomlin would think of your piece? You know, I I. Um, I called the uh, the PR guy at the Steelers, uh, Bert Bert Loughton, and uh, I you know I sent the piece on, and I said you know please uh, I said I doubt that um, Mike will uh, read this, and I doubt uh, even more that he'll comment. But if he does, please send it to me. 
And Bert responded. He said he will read it, but he will not comment. And that's, you know, it's per- perfect Mike Tomlin ending. Yes, it is. Uh, it was a great piece. Uh, it was uh, the joy of uh, my morning a couple of days ago. So uh, I appreciate you writing it. Uh, it was fabulous, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, th- thanks a lot for having me on. It was a uh, pleasure to talk about Coach T. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye. There he goes. That's Tom Janot. That was a hell of a piece. I mean, maybe you could have shortened it up a little bit, though, Tom. I mean, 45 minutes it took me to read that thing. That's just you. I'm kidding, yeah. The normal person might have taken 20. I was riveted from the first damn sentence. It only took me about 10 minutes to get through it, so. Damn it! I don't know what's wrong with you. What the hell? It took me 45! In fact, when it was over, I wanted more, so. Oh, jeez! <laughs> West Virginia education Must coming be through. it. Yeah. That's why it took me five years, because I was still reading the chapters from year one. Freshman year. I mean, this is, this right here, this right here is, I can't write like that. I can't speak the way this guy writes. Uh, Quote, and this is the insoluble paradox at the heart of the racial conversation in the United States circa 2018. That white America speaks of race as consideration to be transcended, and black America speaks of race as a force to be acknowledged that white America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day end the conversation, and black America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day get the real conversation started. One thing that he said there that really struck me is that Mike Tomlin's not interested in politics, and that is 100% the truth. Uh, Mike Tomlin did not, did not state his opinion about the anthem controversy. He's an African-American man who did not state his opinion. You don't find that a lot. Uh, Most players in the league who are African-Americans will state their opinion. But race is not politics. It should not be politics. And Mike Tomlin, instead of talking about it, works for the Man Up organization trying to help inner-city youth. So I think that speaks to that point. Coming up next, spiders, bees, Hawaii, sports moments that you get flack for talking about in the incorrect manner. And we'll talk about Tommy Maddox. It's all in the way. Crowley Show. Ed tweets, good questions, Adam. Nice to put a person behind the article. Hey, I read each word, so obviously Tom's piece was unique and captivating. It also took me 30 minutes to read. I was joking about the length of the article. That's a difficult assignment. When ESPN the magazine, the undefeated say, okay, Tom, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Pittsburgh, and you have to write about something. We don't know what you're going to write about, but write about something. And he says, okay, why not try to dig through some of the mystique that is Coach Tomlin, who puts on this big, brave face, but yet we all know has some vulnerabilities locked in there, as everyone does. And then... The kicker is Tomlin's not going to talk to him about it because Tomlin doesn't talk about his personal life. That's a very difficult assignment, and it was badass. So check it out. I tweeted it at underscore Adam Crowley. The thing that stuck out to me was the tenacity of Tom. Yes. He did not give up, man, and he found another angle to get to what he was going after. That's a journalist. On this program, oh, we are not journalists. No. We just come here, have fun, and, and do some stupid bits here and there and talk about some sports. That guy is a true pro, man. Props for that. 
that guy is a great writer, but you can't be a great writer if you're not a great journalist. Yeah. Not in that field. Yeah, but he knew what he wanted, went after it, and he got something out of nothing, really. He which did. Which is awesome. And enough people are willing to talk around Tomlin to paint the picture of Mike Tomlin. Uh, Kevin Colbert talked. Art Rooney II talked. Yeah. Kevin Colbert's line was the best line to me, though, uh, without a doubt, where Tom said, he's a mystery. And Kevin Colbert said, well, that's the one thing he's not. Hmm. Not to him, not to a guy who knows him, but I think to the media, he is still very much shrouded in that misery. Uh, mystery, pardon me. I'm shrouded in misery because I have to work with Tom Offerman every day. Shirtless Tom behind the glass. Whoa. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be in some misery having to deal with young Mason Rudolph. Do you hear what Tommy Maddox had to say? I didn't know Maddox was alive. Why would anyone ask Tommy Maddox's opinion on anything? Hey, he's a journeyman quarterback. Played in the XFL. He's asking the same thing. Why the hell does anyone want to talk to me now? Hey, it's Tom Janot from ESPN. Would you like to talk to me about Ben Roethlisberger? You you, you sure? Are you looking for Greg Maddox? Is that who you're looking for? Yeah, I'll talk to you about it. Clearly, Tommy had something to say about Ben in the quarterback understudy circumstances. You're trying so hard not to say controversy. (laughs) I had to eat the word. (laughs) Because it's not a controversy. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be that guy. Maddox said, quote, I don't think it's a situation where Ben owes it or that's his job or whatever, but it is his job as a leader of the team to lead the team and make sure there are no distractions. And quote, okay, very good. We dug up Tommy Maddox for useless information. There's nothing there. Let me read that again, and you guys tell me what you gleaned from it. Tell me if there's anything interesting from Tommy Maddox pertaining to Ben Roethlisberger. Quote, I don't think it's a situation where Ben owes it or that's his job or whatever, but it is his job as a leader of the team to lead the team and make sure there's no distractions. End quote. That is just fundamentally awful. There's nothing there that I want that I want to talk about now that I think about it. He said a bunch of words and achieved nothing. <laughs> it's, it's like the Crowley show every day from 4 o'clock until 7. We don't have Tom Genoa. Good thing they got Tommy Maddox. Good thing they tracked him down to get his thoughts. Ben has said that Tommy helped him. That's why you reach out to Tommy. Ben's not going to be... A total douche all the time to Mason. In fact, he texted him yesterday saying, good luck, have fun at rookie camp. And I thought Mason Rudolph handled himself well today, actually having a stare down the gun of the media. Ben just goes on his little protective show and talks to two people. Mason's there, and he talks to everyone. Phil Kessel could learn a thing about talking to the media from young Mason Rudolph. Here's what bothered me most about what Ben said on that radio show. It's that Ben talked about how the organization didn't add players to help this year in that slot, and instead they got Mason Rudolph. But if the Steelers had, say, drafted that offensive lineman who they wound up drafting later on in that round instead of Mason Rudolph, would Ben Roethlisberger have said anything? Would he have complained at all for one second about that guy not helping the team this year? I don't think so. There's always ulterior motives. There are. Speaking of ulterior motives, can I just ask this question, say hypothetical. Do you think 
that Ben Roethlisberger realizes the weight of today in relation to that interview, and maybe that text might have been a little calculated. Is ben, that a is that a possibility? Ben waits until the day before Mason Rudolph talks to the media just to shoot he it out there. He knows the drill. It's it's rookie training camp. There's going to be a scrum. There's going to be microphones in front of the guy's face. If he does that, look, we know Ben knows how to handle the media. We do, don't we? I mean, oh. he knows how to try to manipulate the system. It's his he move. does it every day on that damn or every week on that damn show with a little subtlety. He's a master of that kind of subtle thing. And and the first thing I thought when I heard about that text was like, hmm, was it a genuine text or was it a text with a purpose? Just got to you just got to wonder. I don't know cuz I don't know him. But it's more purpose than it is genuine. I do think that their relationship will not affect whether the Pittsburgh Steelers are no, Super Bowl champions no, this year. But all. I do agree with your point. If you're going to text Mason and be like, "Hey man, I hope you're going to have a, a great career with the Steelers. Hope you're doing all right." Why don't you do it on draft night? Why don't you do it any other night between now and then when you've had the number? You do right, do it this right. day. It just happens to be today. Here's my overarching viewpoint on this. And I'll drop it. But this is my opinion crystallized, okay? Right here, right now. I don't think it's a situation where Ben owes it or that's his job or whatever. But it is his job as a leader of the team to lead the team and make sure there's no distractions. I read Tommy Maddox's quote. <laughs> and no, I don't think either of you knew that. I didn't notice at all. <laughs> I, really, I didn't, I, I didn't I, pick I up really on that for a notice. second thing. And you just read it before now. Oh, man. That's how lame the quote was. That really proved how bad it was, yeah. I nodded off in the middle of both comments. <laughs> Actually, when you said it again, like when you read it back without us knowing it was Tommy Maddox, I said to myself, you know what, that's not a bad point. Guys, like, that's pretty good. It's pretty good stuff, Crowley. <laughs> Guys, it's like, pretty insightful stuff. I don't think it's a situation where Ben owes it or that's his job or whatever, but it is his job as a leader of the team to lead the team and make sure there's no distractions. Oh, it's spot on, Crowley. I couldn't agree with you more. Wow, that's deep, man. That's how do deep. you how do you glean that sort of knowledge? Caboli's back. He just texted me. He said, "Ben texted James Washington too, you jackalope." Caboli, he texted James Washington before. But he just texted James Washington yesterday. That's the difference. That's the problem. If you think I'm wrong, call me up 412-922-2874. I miss your voice. What's the sports moment or player or opinion, really? What's the sports opinion? I haven't framed this well either time I've tried to explain it. What's the sports opinion that you have that you're going to get most criticized for? Because mine is Bobby Orr's goal And him flying through the air? Eh. Eh. I mean, Lemieux's goals. Uh, You show me any of Lemieux's highlight reel goals, and I say, F you, Bobby Orr. And I realize the stakes were high, but that team stunk. They swept them. And there he is flying through the air because he got tripped, but the puck had already crossed the line. So there's my opinion. What's your opinion? Which one are you going to go with? You were telling us a couple off the air. One, me? Yeah. Should you go with the really, really outlandish one or the less than outlandish, outlandish one? Well, I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about because all of my opinions are solid. I, I, I wouldn't know. Um, but I do have a good one, I think. 
that I catch a lot of flack for every time I try to throw it down. Rashid Wallace is one of the five best players ever to play in the oh, NBA. Oh, my sweet NBA Lord. History. <laughs> yeah. You think in the history of the NBA, Rashid Wallace as is cracking a, top five? As a player, yes, I do. I think he's one of the smartest basketball minds ever. LeBron James. Yeah. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Larry Bird. Yeah, okay. Magic Johnson. Okay. Shaquille O'Neal. No. How You're going to say no. that Rasheed Wallace is better than Shaquille O'Neal? How about Wilt? How about I don't know. Oscar I Robertson? I don't know. How about Bill Russell? No. no one said Bill Russell. No. Sheed's up there. There's five players in today's current NBA that are better than Rasheed Wallace all time. Oh, no, that's just BS right No, there. it's not. Sheed Steph was... Steph Curry, Durant, Come LeBron. On. LeBron. The Greek Freak. Well, we'll Look, see. this is why He's I catch flack for than Rasheed it. Yeah. And Westbrook. And then there's probably like five more that we can name, too. Now, playing out your potential was a problem with Rashid Wallace. <laughs> oh, okay. Hey, Kovalev might have been more talented but, than Gretzky. But there were times where this guy would just make you go, what the hell is going on? I mean, things like in that series with Portland, uh, what was it, 2003, whatever it was. they went When they should have won the title. When they should have won the title. When he was in the middle of like getting all the technical fouls. I mean, what, he had gotten like 40 technical fouls in a season. It was just insane. These refs were all over him. He this couldn't guy. do what he needed to do. That's that a bad case. He should have had one there. And then you go to Detroit. Remember what was it, game five when he absolutely went off? When that one Euro, I can't pronounce his name. I can't remember who he was. Uh, it was like... Oh, geez. I can't remember. Anyway, he went off for like 24 points in the second half, like 9, 10 assists. Like, basically had a triple-double in the second half. It was insane, man. This guy was badass, but he got, look, I, and I get it. it there were some mental things there, but as its base, at a, as a player, as someone who you think is very good, aside from winning multiple championships and being the darling of the NBA, I think he's one of the greatest. Tom, what's your opinion? Not to mention going back to UNC. Remember how dominant he was in college? Oh, yeah. But so is J.J. Reddick. He's not a top-five player of all time. Man. I mean, this guy. It's a terrible opinion. take. Yeah, it's man. awful. That's, take. Awful. Why, that's what we're doing, right? That's true. Now, give me your terrible take. Uh, 1983 NC State men's basketball team that won on that alley-oop. Well, alley-oop, it was definitely just an air ball. That's so overrated. They got so lucky there. I mean, he missed the shot completely. And they just got bailed out by Lorenzo Charles because he caught it and put it in the hoop. Isn't that what makes it fabulous, that's though? That's tenacity. Uh, no, that's garbage. Not to mention, it was an underdog story. Miss me with that. Whoa. What else you got? Uh, how about the Jordan play? The famous one where he's going through the air to make a layup with his right hand. <laughs> and then he passes the ball to his left hand in midair and makes the layup. I mean, there's someone who's coming off someone's bench today in, like, the eighth spot in the rotation. Everyone does that, right? that now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think I kind of got a little bit of it now, too. I mean, I can't jump very high, but I can do it. I, I think can get all it three of us could a... switch in midair <laughs> yeah. hands and make the land. Yeah. That's I mean, way I, overrated. I got to do it uh, real quick because I don't have much of a vertical, but <laughs> I, I think mean, I could do it. If LeBron's going up for that in today's day and age, he's dunking it through the hoop. He's not switching hands. I've got so many good tweets on this. Some guy just tweeted in that Derek Jeter's overrated. Oh, boy. And he's a really good player. He had an 817 career OPS. But he hit 310 lifetime. And he's a really good player. He's a Hall of Fame player. Some people will say he's the greatest shortstop of all time. At the end of his career, and by the end, I mean like the last eight years of his career, that play, the Jeter play where he's backhanding it and throwing across the diamond yeah. to go to first pace, any other shortstop in the league is rounding that off 
tapping the glove twice and throwing it the other way. I'll I'll tell you why he's overrated. New York as a shortstop. Uh, one New York, and it's two. Nobody had seen Manny Machado yet. Oh, for the oh love my God. God! Greatest Here's shortstop ever on the baseball in. side. Yadier Molina. He gets way too much hype. I'll give you that. He gets way too much hype. He's great defensively. Amazing. We'll keep this up. I want your submissions, your sports opinion that will get you the most flack. That's a much better way of saying it, Crowley. Yeah, way to finally good get job. it to nail wow. it down, dude. Uh, yeah. well, is it the fourth time? <laughs> yeah, fifth, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but good stuff. 25% of the time, it works every time. Woo. Your sports opinion that gets you the most flack. Coming up next, it's okay if you're conflicted on Andrew McCutcheon coming back. We'll talk about it. It's Crowley Show. What does it take to rebuild trust? At Wells Fargo, we've been thinking about that a lot lately. For us, it begins with a renewed commitment to our customers. Fixing what went wrong making things right, working with more transparency and higher accountability, and reinventing how we serve you. It's a new day at Wells Fargo, but it's a lot like our first day. Wells Fargo, established 1852, reestablished 2018. Wells Fargo Bank N.A., member FDIC. You know who I think is the uh, best basketball player of all time? Who? Javon Carter. God. He's going to be at the Combine this week. Oh, is he? Yeah. Where's Same. he projected to go? Uh, in the draft. <laughs> who's yeah. the, who's Are the, all the pit players projected to leave? Okay, huh? you know, Who's that's... the greatest quarterback in college? Oh, it's Will Greer. 